Welcome to the Urban Astronomer Podcast. So, this is the second episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. And I'd like to first off thank everybody who listened to the first episode and liked it enough to tell a friend or give us a mention on social media. Small podcasts like mine live and die on their publicity alone, so thank you very, very much. Anybody who knows me and who's heard me talk about my plans for this podcast knows that I'm very concerned about South Africa's place in world astronomy. We have a rich history with a number of astronomical milestones having been passed in this country over the past few centuries. And yet, if you ask anyone, they're completely unaware of this. So... I will regularly be interrupting my normal news and opinions formats to interview various figures in local astronomy. This week, I managed to get a hold of Alka Sotokov, a man whose name I've been mispronouncing ever since I first met him many years ago. He serves as a section director for the Astronomical Society of South Africa and is actively involved in astronomy outreach in the Western Cape. He's also one of the editors of the Sky Guide Africa South, which is a publication that the Astronomical Society puts out every year, uh, which you can buy in most bookshops, and which serves pretty much as the Bible of observational astronomy in this country. Uh, if you have ever been to the VNA waterfronts in Cape Town and been invited through a telescope by a friendly group of astronomers, well, you've probably met him. He's a fascinating guy, and he kept me on the line for over an hour. We talked about his career as a psychohistorian, South Africa's historical role in astronomy, and the importance of preserving history in general. I hope you enjoy listening to this recording. Normally when people ask me, when I introduce myself and I say my name, and they, their eyes sort of vaguely glaze over, and they ask me, what do, what do I call you? And I say, well, most people call me you bastard, but you can call me Oka or Auka. Mm-hmm. Because it's a name from Friesland, which is the northernmost province in Holland. Right. And there's a strange bunch of people there. Frisian, which is still spoken today, is very, very similar on the ear to Old English. So they have sounds in Frisian which are English sounds. Right. And not at all Germanic or Afrikaans. So my name, for example, in South Africa, you pronounce it ochre, almost mm. like the color. But in Frisian, it's Auker. And Auker okay. is an English sound, like cow. Right. You know, the Au sound doesn't appear in Afrikaans. So, yes, and if they further ask for something you know, m- more on paper, then I just send them to my website. I've got an about page there <laughs> where I claim all sorts of things, like I invented the nostril and mm. sorts of strange things. Unverifiable if, facts, if yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. If it's a serious question, Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a serious sort of uh, thing, then I say, well, I'm a psycho-historian. And if I ask what that is, then it depends on the context. If it's a cocktail party, then I say I'm an out-of-work tennis coach because mm-hmm. then people are friendly and affable because they understand that. They can relate to an out-of-work tennis coach. If you say that you do mathematical modeling of human behavior, then the eyes glaze over you know, because mathematics is well, I is to ask. Ask. You know, I mean, shouldn't do that. Because to me, psychohistorian is a fictional field from an Asimov novel. Um, That's exactly that, yeah. Right. You make it sound like it's a real thing. It is a real thing. It's real. There are two things that are real about it. The one is there is a a subfield in psychology called psychohistory where the idea is obviously just to apply 
um, understanding of, of psychology mm-hmm. to individuals in history and to try to understand why certain things happen. Right. I, I think a beautiful example was after the Second World War, um, a lot of the German psychologists you know, overcome with angst and so on because they tried to explain how could Hitler and the people yeah. do all these terrible things. What was the psychology behind that? So in one sense, psychohistory is a is a sort of oddly strange, weird sub-discipline field in psychology where you try to explain um, the great man theory, you know, what individuals have done to change the course of history. My psychohistorian is the Asimovian kind, mm-hmm. which is exactly that. It's mathematical modeling of human behavior. Okay. Not quite as grandiose as Asimov did it, of course. I mean, the man wasn't a fool. He understood that no amount of computation can actually ever calculate, well, in his case, what the whole galaxy does. Yeah. Well, he was writing a fictional novel. I mean, he also had faster-than-light yeah. travels, so he made an sure. advance, I'm sure. I don't know how familiar you are with, with his foundation trilogy, but he's got a character in there called the Mule. And that character, he, he the psycho-historians in his story, describe as a character that is not predictable in their mathematical models. Mm. And that this, you know, this major problem for for the project of, of Barry Selden and so on. So what Asimov was doing is he was just, he was exaggerating slightly what one could potentially do in terms of calculating human behavior, but he showed that he understood that you cannot. There will be emergent properties. There will be things that, that happen that cannot in principle be calculated. So he he understood very well. He didn't he didn't think for a second that you could with a big enough computer, you know, compute the universe. Mm. Because you can't. It's a complex system. With a complex system there is no fundamental basic low level formula that you can evaluate to calculate a future state. Right. A practical example, I know nothing about economics, a practical example perhaps is the weather. Um, all the mm-hmm. variables and things involved in describing um, the, the Earth weather system, those, if you look at them, those show them to be a complex system, which means no amount of prediction can be ultimately accurate mm-hmm. in the future. So if somebody says, you know, in, in next week it's going to rain, there really is no sense in listening to a statement like that because mm-hmm. it is it, it is in principle impossible to calculate that. Even if you had a computer as big as the universe, in principle you can't calculate that. So what we see with weather reports is, again, we see essentially um, symptomatic calculations are done. You look at certain patterns which you've seen in the past and you do a pattern match and then you make a prediction. And those predictions can be accurate for, at the current state of our modeling, for two or three days. But anything mm. beyond that, uh, the models simply diverge completely after running the simulation for you know three three or three or three or four days. Of course, anybody can say there's a hundred percent probability it will rain in 2018. Right, right. I mean, anybody can calculate that. <laughs> yeah. But the narrower you bring the one variable, the larger your uncertainty becomes. 
And that's only because these variables that we're trying to pin down interact with each other such that properties emerge. I don't know if you, you know what I mean when I say emerge? Um, does it sound all weird? Yeah, I'm not sure. It probably okay, does water. explaining. I mean, I... Let's, yeah. let's, take, let's take water. You're happy that water has got a property of viscosity. Right. The flowiness. We, you know, we can, we can add yeah, stuff to water and we can... It's resistance to so, things. So visco- it, yeah. yeah, exactly. So viscosity is a, is a very obvious feature of, say, for example, water. Mm. But you know that water consists of hydrogen and oxygen. Right. But hydrogen doesn't have viscosity. You can't sensibly talk about what is the viscosity of a hydrogen atom. Okay, right. And similarly with an oxygen atom. And in fact, when you combine the two and you get a water molecule, Mm. it makes no sense to ask what is the viscosity of a water molecule. So that property then is, uh, well, it emerges then from the interactions between the molecules that are formed from those two elements. That's exactly it. It's an emergent property, which is a real thing. Viscosity is real, Mm. but it does not reside in any of the component elements. Mm. So if you reduce the system to its components, Mm -hmm. you're going to get a lot of truth. Most of science, I'm not, I don't know how much, but 99% of science that, that, that we've ever done is extremely, is extremely successful because it follows this reductionistic pattern. Mm. It breaks the bridge down into its component forces, calculates levers and momentums and weights, and, the, and, and predicts correctly the bridge will fall over. So science works very, very well when you deal with simple systems that you can reduce. The moment you work with a complex system, in other words, a system that has emergent properties, our standard approach of reductionistic science um, either fails completely or only w- works for a short while. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I don't have a decent segue for this, so let's talk about deep sky observing. <laughs> you are, you, you're, you're still the deep sky uh, section director for, for ASA, right? Yes, I'm still section director. All right, just making sure that nothing's changed while, I, while I've been away. Uh, <laughs> um, so so what what is... What is deep sky observing? What are, what are deep sky objects? The deep sky is everything basically beyond the solar system that one can observe with a telescope. And I, I found that exciting as a kid to think that, yeah, you know, we've got the moon, we've got the sun and the planets and so on, but I'd always been intrigued by all the little faint fuzzy objects that are, are out there. So traditionally, deep sky observing... Um, has included double stars in and amongst all the fuzzy objects uh, that we like to observe. And that's just for historical reasons, because prior to observing these objects, astronomers were only looking at single stars with the aim of determining position, mm-hmm. so that based on the position, they can calculate time, and from time, they can calculate location, so then you can send your military warships to go and kill the right people at the right place. Right, right. So early astronomy was a was a, a government function, and it was in service of the navy. Well, it was pretty much in the west. The second big phase of astronomy, right? Because the first one was just telling the future. You go back to Tycho Brahe yeah, and those sure. guys. They were just astrologers, really. Um, 
I mean, trying to understand, sure, yes. but for the purpose of of anyway. Um, you were saying strangely, no, even hmm. even Kepler. Hmm. I mean, you know, we think of Kepler as, or I think properly, we should think of Kepler as as being on par with Newton in that essentially all Newton did was to prove um, Kepler's basic laws. So well, Kepler, Kepler observed really up there. the laws. Uh, Newton explained them, right? Remember, Kepler didn't actually observe anything. He was just a theoretician. He used Brahe's observations. Oh, for a very uh, loose definition he of observation. <laughs> he looked at the numbers. Yeah, I mean, he didn't, he didn't. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, mm. but he he wasn't the, the yeah exactly. So 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 Kepler was was you know was a really amazing um, um, scientist, but he did see himself as some kind of prophet. He, he was very religious. Mm-hmm. He lived at a very interesting time. His mother was thought to be a witch, so he had to position himself carefully. And when he discovered all these amazing regularities in his calculations, because I mean, face it, you know, Kepler's third law was pretty impressive. Yeah, it's amazing that this very simple mathematical relationship connects, you know, distance and orbital period. So, and that is a very impressive thing. And, it is. And, he took it on board, and, and he thought of himself as a prophet, which is mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. So, but but that was that was sort of you know, that was the thinking of the time. You know, it didn't mean that these people were idiots, mm. not at all. It's a very revisionist history to, to look back at them and to to think there was something wrong with them. As all people, you're always a product of your time. Mm. Um, yeah. So so as you're saying that that the first. Probably the first formal use, employable use of astronomy was 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 horoscope, as Kepler cast, and all the other calendrical things, and, and when one must plant, and when you must have babies, and all that. But the West came along and then made it into a navigation thing. That's why the observatory in Cape Town was established, mm. was to get accurate maps of the southern hemisphere, so that you know they could calculate their Latin longs and. Uh, navigate mm. properly. That was what seventeenth um, century, wasn't it, or, or, or more recent than that? The the observatory at Cape Town. Yeah. That that was on the dot eighteen twenty. The king, um, I think it was George. They were well, they were all George, I think. Mm. Um, the, the British king wrote a proclamation that said that he's establishing two bodies. The one body is the Royal Astronomical Society, the RAS. Mm-hmm. And in the same proclamation, he established an observatory in South Africa, in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. So both the SAO and the RAS, they are the same the same age, which is going to be 200 years in, in, in three years' time. Wow. <laughs> the SAO is an amazing place. It's, it's the oldest scientific institution in, on, in Africa, which is I've quite something. It's, it's been it's, running... I mean, obviously, you you live in the area, but yeah, it's it's it's, it's worth visiting. It's just incredible. It's the most interesting things. Uh, uh, one problem is that that some of the information about what's going on there, or what happened there, or what one can see if you visit the site now, most of that information is probably quite inaccessible. You know, it is mm-hmm. available if you really go and dig, but um, in some sense, our our our, our British heritage. And apparently, our South African, at least South Western South African um, 
Western-inspired South African attitude yeah. has left us quite different from an American attitude. You know, the Americans, the first thing they tell you is that the Hubble Space Telescope belongs to NASA. Right. And if, if you read the fine print, then it always tells you at the bottom, okay, but it's actually also the European Space Agency and Canada and all these other boring places. Mm-hmm. But they essentially start their press releases with NASA's Hubble Space Telescope discovered something or other. If you read the, the European press release, mm-hmm. it says the NASA ESA Hubble Space Telescope discovered, you know, something or other. But NASA's still Africa, is at the front. <laughs> yeah, sure. I think South Africa suffers from that same British syndrome in that we don't generally brag about the stuff that we've done. Well, that's uh, you know, that's pretty silly. Yeah. It's bonkers. I mean, I mean, you as director of the astrophotography section, uh, you know, you, you're the best position to understand that astrophotography is kind of an important thing. It's a big deal in astronomy. Yeah. And that habit was created in Cape Town. It was in Cape Town when the the, the light first dawned in some human's brain. Hey, maybe we can take photographs of the stars and then count them during the daytime. And that's story. Was it Herschel? No. Remember, Herschel was still, when he was here, he still had to invent the word photography a negative. He hadn't invented that yet. He would go on to create the word negative. He would go on to invent fixer, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to fix the, to arrest the developing process. He still had to do that when he was, when he Mm -hmm. came down. Um, it was a while later, it was, it was um, David Gill, who, uh, you know, was the, was the up follower, <laughs> or yeah. the, what, what's the predecessor, prede- what opposite of predecessor? Um, antecedent. Antecedent or antecedent, or however you pronounce it. Yes, that thing. Yes, that thing. Yeah. He was that um, from, from John Urschel's friend, uh, Thomas McClear. Right. And um, Gill was a, was a, was a really, was a superman, and, Gill was the guy who cottoned onto the concept of using astrophotography as a way to study the stars. There was a comet visible. His assistant, a guy called William Finley, um, had been observing. He was out, he was out one morning um, observing. Mm-hmm. It was a lunar occultation. And the occultation happened kind of as the sun was beginning to sort of rise. And he'd had a whole long night observing, and he was tired and hutful, and he observed the occultation. And minutes after the occultation, he'd already shut the dome mm-hmm. and climbed down this long staircase, and he walked home. And from from where the dome was to his house is on the order of 50 meters. You know, it's, not, it's not really very far. Yeah. And the observatory is you know, was well stocked with trees. And in that walk home, he happened to look up and he saw a comet low on the horizon near the sun. Right. So somehow, he, you know, he was, well, not somehow, we, we would all be, but he was mm-hmm. galvanized and he found the edge and he rushed back to the dome, ran up the spiral staircase and, you know, ripped open the cover and aimed the telescope and managed to get the, te- the, the, the comet in the eyepiece and mm-hmm. a nearby star. So you could measure the position angle and the separation, you know, the distance and direction from mm-hmm. that star. And then, of course, the sun came up and, you know, spoiled the view. 
so he could note down the date and the time and the, st- and the comet's position. Mm-hmm. And that was then, you know, emailed to England and so on, and the comet then had his name, Comet Finley. Did you say email? A bit later on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> the favorite mode of, I don't know, carrier pigeon or... Well, it's starting to feel pretty old-fashioned these days, so... <laughs> <laughs> If you'd said WhatsApp, I would have laughed at you, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. I must remember that. Yeah. He uh, wasn't, of course. He, he Snapchatted the picture to, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> to the observatory. So this comet became a daylight thing. It became so bright. It was the great comet of 1882, and it was a very bright object and so on. Hmm. And then one day, he got a letter, and the letter included sort of a very skanky photograph of the comet. And it was taken by, by a, a, an, an amateur photographer. Right. And he wrote to Gillard and said, you know, well, you may be interested in this, you know, this skanky picture. It's the comet. And I took it with my camera. And, you know, so Gil kind of sort of hid the letter away for a bit. And he wrote back to the guy quite a while later. But in the meanwhile, he jumped on his horse and he moseyed down to Cape Town to fetch himself a photographer. Mm-hmm. And he got to Mr. At- and he said to Mr. Ellis, you know, you, you got a camera. And so they entered into sort of an, an agreement. Ellis came to the observatory and set up his camera and took a photo of the comet. So Gil was interested in how he was using this new, this camera thing mm-hmm. and how these weights worked and so on. Uh, and um, had the thing developed and Ellis came to show him the photograph. And then Gil noticed that. The, camp, the stars were trailing because he had to do a long exposure because it wasn't very sensitive. Mm-hmm. And Gil said, but hang on a second, I've got this piece of Velcro, why don't we use Velcro the camera to the six-inch refractor? And I looked through the refractor and you know, so guiding was created. Right. So that's what Gil did, is he, he was guiding with a six-inch mm-hmm. while this camera piggybacked on and then took um, relatively long exposure images, mm-hmm. which Alice back to his to his um, studio, developed and brought him the prints. And you know, Alice was like, "Oh my God, look how pretty the comet is!" And Gil was like, was more like, "What is this comet doing in the picture? It's disturbing all these beautiful stars in the background." <laughs> the print, he could see dozens of stars. Right. And he realized that instead of measuring each individual star with multiple observations, because if you want to catalog stars, mm. you need multiple observations of the star's right ascension. Yeah. And with a different instrument and a different oh, observer, you need to try and a different date, you measure the depth of and... Yeah. So they had two kinds of equipment. The one can only measure RA. Um, and the other one could only measure declination. And there was no way of measuring Earth stars, RA and DEC with one observation. And he realized, yeah, it was crazy. Astronomy, I would not have wanted to be an astronomer in the previous century because it dull as horse bollocks. You know, it was was really very unexciting stuff. Mm. But anyway, so saw that on this photo he had he had stars and he knew that if he could calculate 
through old observations with transit instruments and so on, if you could calculate a given star's RA and deck, or sorry, observe a given star's RA and deck, then on the photograph you could measure the offset of mm. other stars. And so there the whole project began. So he, he packed off that photograph and he sent it to the RAS back in, in, in England and said to them, well, look, here's this nice picture of a comet that, you know, forget that, look at all these cool stars. And that kicked off um, a massive project called the Cartusil to measure um, through photographs the entire sky. Each observatory in the world was given a zone to observe, and they had to photograph it. They had a they used a 13-inch refractor. Can you imagine having a 13-inch refractor oh. as your photograph? It's, Where it's would you put it? Because that would be huge. Massive. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just gorgeous. Um, one thing they did do is so, so they went on this whole project and measured it. That's took photographs, and it never finished. The project was simply way too big. Um, the the seal program never was never completed because the people just died. It took so long to do. But here at the Cape, they did a couple of cool things with that instrument right in the beginning already, and that is they aimed it at Ita Carina. Okay. And you'll appreciate, you'll appreciate this story. So it's a 13-inch refractor. I think the... I forget what the what the how fast it was. Anyway, thirteen inch big thing, you know, bigger than your car kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the one photo of Ita Carina um, was a twenty four hour exposure. I'm gonna so guess that, that the, they must have stuck the lens cap on when the sun came up, and then to hope that they were lined up still the next day and took it off again. Twenty four hours. 24 hours, they, they, they were less ambitious. They also took a 12-hour one and then a 6-hour one and then I think a 2-hour one. <laughs> but they clearly they were pushing, you know, they are trying to go as far, you know, yeah. just pushing the exposure times. But you're quite right, you know. they You would simply continue exposing and then, uh, as you say, put the lens cap on and then you would, you would hope and pray that mm-hmm. your drive mechanism had sufficient pointing accuracy so that when you picked up Ita Carina again the next night, you know, yeah, the stars would register. Yeah. And wow. I mean, if you look at that glass plate, those stars are round. They're not, you know, figure eight shapes or, or, or odd shapes. I can't get so, round stars in my photographs. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, remember that, that, that the gear for this thing, you know, the mm. RA gear that, that makes it turn, right. you know, is bigger than a meter in diameter, so it's it's big. Yeah. You know, the mount is actually very big. It's really big. Mm. And, and if our scopes have got with gears with what I don't know, fifteen centimeters or whatever diameter we've got, yeah, that's about what I've got. Area, it's sloppy. There's going to be there's going to be a problem in making a gear. It's going to mesh that nicely. Mm. So. I just over-engineer the things, but still. So, so this was in the, in the late 1890s. They could they could get 24-hour exposures of of stuff. Now, of course, the the, the photographic plate they used, the, the chemical process. I think that thing's ISO was probably like minus seven or something. <laughs> it was hard <laughs> light sensitive. <laughs> so, if you take your DSLR on a, on a, on a four-inch. And you aim at Ita Karina and you and you do maybe a one minute exposure. Yeah. You've already got more light than what they got with a thirteen inch 
on a 24-hour exposure. Mm. But, but still, you know, they, they, uh, that to me is, 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 is quite an impressive, impressive feat, specifically because the telescopes weren't designed for astrophotography. If you remember, all these things were visual instruments. Right. So you didn't require sub-arc second precision in tracking and pointing. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you're looking through it and you're focusing and fiddling with it and it wobbles and bounces and so on. And, you know, so what's the point? Yeah. But the, the, the equipment was so meticulously made that it was able to deliver that kind of, of precision. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So it sounds like just from the story alone, I've picked up a few world firsts here happening in South Africa. Astrophotography, um, sky surveys, astrometry. That's what else did we were we first in? Since we're going, uh, do, do, doing the historical uh, route now, um, I must admit my my knowledge of what happened in the rest of of South Africa, north of the mountains, is rather scant. Right. I'm inclined to think that Africa ends where the mountains start, and then you need a visa to go to Joburg. Right, well, you are a captain. Other folks will know better about what Boyden did. Mm. Um, Boyden, um, just outside Bloom, um, probably their biggest claim to fame is that um, the Cepheid period luminosity law. Mm-hmm. You know that relates uh, so the so uh, the variable stars that pulsate. Yeah. And certain types of variable stars, if you can measure their period that they go from bright to dim to bright, with a quite simple mathematical relationship, you can convert that period in days into intrinsic brightness. Mm. Into what? And that you can convert into magnitude, which means you automatically got distance. Right. So if you, can, if you can find a Cepheid variable in a galaxy or in an object somewhere and you can measure its period just by plotting the light curve, you've automatically got the distance to the object. Mm. And distance determination is one of the most difficult things um, in astronomy and always has been. So that period luminosity relationship was discovered by Henrietta Leavitt. And she did that by using photographs taken for that purpose at Boyden Observatory. So at that stage, Boyden was owned um, by Harvard University in in America. Mm -hmm. And they had locals living at Boyden who would then take the photographs required that the scientists wanted. These will be packaged up and taken by ship back to Harvard and developed. Mm -hmm. And the photographs would then be measured. And one of the things that Henrietta Leavitt then measured and then discovered was this period luminosity relationship. So, um, one of the most fundamental ways of determining distance in the universe, that relationship was discovered uh, with, with Boyd in, in Bloemfontein. Mm. So, that's a pretty big first. Why did they, uh, why, why did they use Boyden to do that? I mean, which... Which, which star were they were they looking at again? So why Boyden mm. or why Bloemfontein? Yeah. Well, if you think if you think of our country's history at that more or less at that time, you've got the Cape, which is obviously British, mm-hmm. and you've already got the Royal Observatory since 1820. So for you know a hundred years, the astronomy in South Africa and the Cape was the Brits. Yeah. 
Um, in the north, you've got Johannesburg and Pretoria and places, and you you, you don't want to go there. So you so that's out. <laughs> so that only leaves essentially Bloemfontein. Because if you remember, in the north, you had the Inni and the Republic and the Transvaal Observatory. Right, Those yeah. were already established. Right. So really, the only large center that 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 that, that a you know a civilized astronomer could go to <laughs> turns out to be Bloemfontein. And the, and the, the Americans, of the free state, yeah. there you go. And the Americans had always wanted a southern observatory, mm-hmm. so they built their first one. They built in Peru, and they called it Boyden Observatory because there was this rich dude called Boyden. Mm-hmm. He was like Keck, you know, the William Keck telescopes. Yeah, yeah. He was just some rich tosser who wanted to be famous when he was dead. So, so Boyden um, <laughs> built their they built Boyden Observatory in Peru. But, you know, quite ominously, the mountain at the foot of which they built the observatory was later nicknamed El Misty. <laughs> because, you know, the, the cloud cover was a little bit irksome. Right. So after, after moving everything there and building this huge big observatory in Peru, they decided it is not good. And so then they looked for another sec, for another southern location. Mm. And at that time, in South Africa, already in Bloemfontein was an amateur who had a telescope and he was measuring double stars. That was, you know, that was his thing. Mm -hmm. And um, he had a very, very, very rich friend who, as a gift, gave him a 26-inch telescope, which is pretty big. That's pretty generous. It was one of the biggest in the world at the time. I I don't (laughs) know if it was third or fourth biggest. But he built him this massive observatory um, in the middle of Bloemfontein, the Lamont Hasse Observatory. Right. And that year was that they would do variables, uh, they would do double star measurements there. Mm-hmm. So by the time that Harvard was looking for a suitable southern site, they could simply, you know, as you say, WhatsApp the Lamont Hasse Observatory and ask them, well, you know, what's your seeing like? What's your weather records like? You know, and is there good coffee and so on? And when they got good reports of the climate, mm-hmm. They looked around for a for a local for a good spot, and they chose um, Boyden, which is a copy, a couple of kilometers outside of Bloom. And then the Americans built the the big, that they moved Boyden Observatory there. Right. Over time, with the politics and so on, when when they withdrew other partners from Ireland and so on in Europe, um, the, uh, took membership of the Boyden Observatory. And then eventually, when the politics just became obviously ridiculous, um, the observatory was essentially abandoned and handed over to anybody who said they wanted it, more or less. Hmm. Uh, which fortunately turned out not to be the RVBA, but turned out to be the University of the Free State. <laughs> right. So they then continued that tradition of of doing important research at Boyden. So so. I, I'm guessing Boyden. I think probably if you had to say silly things like what its claim to fame is, I would say probably would be the period luminosity relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, to answer your question about, about what other first South Africa had, um, I'm more familiar with the first that were here in the Cape, which is okay. quite provincial of me, really. <laughs> uh, mm. Other first yeah. in Cape Town, obviously, discovery of the nearest star to the sun. Of course, yes. Uh, that they, was, you know, massive, they had monuments up recently, didn't they? 
Yeah, that was a massive thing because again, distances is always the problem mm-hmm. to measure to measure things in space. And um, Thomas Henderson was one of the first bosses, one of the first astronomer, His Majesty's astronomers in Cape Town. He began to get an inkling that there was something, you know, dodgy for Centauri. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote sort of very prescient papers, one prescient paper, in which he's pretty much thinking that, yeah, you know, it's it's Alpha Centauri. Right. And then it was a combination of observations by Innes, who was in, at Johannesburg. So actually, hang on a second, it's... Innes gets the credit, and Innes wasn't Joburg. So well, Joburg. This is true because the, the, that monument was in two parts, wasn't it? There was it, it's one outside. Um, uh, yes, I forget. Well, there's, one. there's one of those whose names changed so many times, but it's it's the one where the Joburgs uh, as a do their viewing evenings, isn't it? The, the one that they yeah, that's the Hall slash Republic slash Union Observatory. That guy, yes, those so guys. That's where, <laughs> that's where Innes was. Mm-hmm. But Innes was originally in Cape Town. Innes was was a wine merchant, and he was he was really interested in astronomy as a sort of a hobby, mm-hmm. and he sold a lot of wine in Australia and made lots of money, and was a really funky guy. And then he wrote a letter to the Cape and said, "But I really want to do the astronomy thing, and I'm very good at mathematics. Look, I can count to seven. Can I please come work there?" And um, you know, the boss said, "Well, we actually haven't got money for you, but if you want to be like a laborer." and count soap, then we can give you a job. And right. then he said, no, definitely fine, as long as I get to look through telescopes. So, <laughs> so technically he was employed um, as sort of the lowest of the low admin guys mm. while he was actually doing hardcore observing while he was at the Cape. Brilliant. And then Gil said, but hang on, you know, we need, you can, you are able to run your own observatory, really. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, the guys up in Joburg were looking to establish um, an observatory of some kind. Mm. But the local government said, no, that's all nonsense. Um, And through some scheming, they established what was supposed to be a meteorological station to to observe the weather. So on paper, the government was funding a weather monitoring building. A very well-equipped weather station. <laughs> and so on. so um, Inez then basically went over and established uh, or, or started you know, scientific astronomy in Transvaal. Hang on. Is, is, is that why yeah. I occasionally get phone calls from reporters wanting to know about weather phenomenon, like rainbows and so on? Because, they, because of this weather station that was actually an observatory sowing confusion. You think that might Absolutely. be? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, anyway, so you, you, you were telling a story. The public is an interesting animal. Um, oh, yes, yeah, so Innes was an interesting dude. He, he came over from Australia, um, all very prim and proper, you know, with the beard and everything, and, you know, the head and the old toot. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, obviously with his family photographs and, and so on. So at one point somebody says, you know, we need a photograph for the, for the burger, you know, you have like a press photo or something. So then he gives him this little picture of him sitting in a wicker chair, but the right-hand side of the picture is sort of cut off. Mm-hmm. And you can see a lady's foot just sticking out there. So obviously there were two chairs and there was, a, you know, a person of the female persuasion in the other chair, mm-hmm. but she was sort of cut out of the picture. But anyway, that was the... 
that was the proper, you know, young inner's picture. Right. And um, so, you know, you know, being a sort of a super giant bachelor or something, he found himself a hot girl here in Cape Town. And, you know, they were famous and, and, and had lots of funds and all that. Mm-hmm. And then one morning, his wife arrived. <laughs> so what happened is his poor wife, mm-hmm. who was back in Australia, was terminally ill with, I don't know, the crinkles or whatever they had in those days. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew you know, that, that she would be six feet under in two days. So, you know, sort of said, well, you know, cheerily bye and, and have a good time. <laughs> what is <a> swine? <laughs> I don't know if he what was a, a swine. I, that bit I've never been able to trace if he was really so bad. But perhaps if one looks at the timeline, it looks like you know everybody knew that she was going to be dead. Maybe she was in a coma. I don't know. But when was this? I mean, what, what's the timeline? This was like eighteen, you know. So it was it was a while ago. Well, I but, suppose. Um, I mean, this was this is back when people would have extra kids as spares because you know, well, some of them sure. would die. So exactly, yeah. sure. So I don't. I, mean, I don't think he was a bad guy. I think that we just don't. I just don't have all the historical facts. But it was certainly understood that his wife was either dead or pretty much going to be dead next week. Yeah. Uh, so then he came over to Cape Town, and then it's a new chick, and they ate on famously, and then his wife recovered and followed. And the three of them live together happily ever after. So we've got, you know, oh. early 1900s, Innes with two wives, and, 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 and Innes was, was boss of the observatory. So, so that's a social and proper Victorian era, eh? Exactly, exactly. Wow. You, know, you know, it's important guys got two wives, I suppose it can't be all that bad. Huh. But so, yeah, it was an interesting, <laughs> interesting thing. About astronomers, and one thing that that I would like to mention is that we've recently formed um, a non-profit to look after South African astronomical heritage, because that's kind of a thing that's you know pretty much endangered, because mm. people don't always think that history is important until it's too late. You know, if if you think of any institution really. There's, there's some chap or lady who's been there forever and who knows where everything is and who knows the history of the organization. Mm-hmm. And that's great when that person is there. But when that person is no longer there, that institutional heritage is just missing. Yeah. A lot of South African astronomy has already disappeared because people have passed away um, or the organizations themselves have been reckless and haven't preserved their own history. You know, people typically think history is something which is old. If the right. paper is sort of kind of yellowish and it's sort of a bit stinky, then it must be, you know, probably valuable because it's old. Right. But history is a thing which happens every moment. So our discussion, in fact, this sentence is part of history. Mm. It may not be significant. <laughs> oh, yeah, this, is my, this is my podcast you're talking about. It's plenty significant. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and in future, and in future, with more wisdom, one will be able to find more significance in, for example, your podcast. Mm-hmm. Now, well, if I it don't makes know. It to a second episode, then definitely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who knows what people 
are able or will be able to study in future. Right. Um, but things that have happened, um, people, you know, because we are psychological animals, we, we very much are inclined to to live in the strange nowness with a vague future directedness with sort of a guilty edge of what happened in the past. Mm-hmm. But um, very much as human beings, we, we kind of think that now is the norm. So who I am now is in some way correct or, or true or 100%. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that same person had that exact same attitude 10 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, you will have it in 10 years in the future if you stop smoking and drinking much wine and so on. So, so people kind of forget um, that until they invent a time machine, if a thing happened in the past and it isn't in some way um, recorded or remembered, it's, it, you know, truly really is lost. Right. So, um, a group of us have, you know, have sort of become concerned about South Africa's astronomical heritage. Um, and, and at some future date, we can talk about what astronomy is. Because mm-hmm. if you want to look after astronomical heritage, you probably need to know what astronomy is. And, and I've got a rather different opinion about what astronomy is compared to, say, what you would find in a typical dictionary. But um, ASA has got a long history the, our individual members have got a long history, a personal history in astronomy. Um, maybe not all of, of Edwin Hubble or Albert Einstein quality, mm-hmm. but that will be for the future to decide the importance and relevance of any individual's actions. So um, we're very interested in, in, in uh, getting people to volunteer their time to help with a whole host of astronomical heritage projects. Um, so that I would like to pump. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, for sure. How can people find out about this? I mean, is there a website or or Facebook group or something? Or? Yes, um, we we finally, after a whole bunch of shenanigans, managed to register a formal non-profit company called the Center for Astronomical Heritage. And so, website-wise, we are cfah.org.za, and there's some some slight material about what we're interested in on there. Mm-hmm. Um, various of our projects are listed there that we're currently undertaking, and it's a wide range of things. Um, for example, the whole Save the Karoo um, action that that is you know is militant against the SKA. Right. That is an example of heritage that is happening now. At some point in the future, what this group did to try to prevent the SKA, or I don't know, maybe successfully prevented the SKA, who knows, mm-hmm. and that will become of interest. And so, so, so one of our projects is um, to record what is being said and done by people on both sides of the argument. Mm-hmm. So history in that sense is, is truly live. And then, of course, there's history in the other sense of like the really old things, mm-hmm. um, such as a, um, a, you know, a, a, a project to collect and glum star stories, you know, our oldest Bushman group. Right. And not that they are native speakers anymore, 
Um, but there are other groups whose, whose stories still survive to this day, at least in fragmentary form. And then sort of somewhere in between, if you've got an astronomer, um, say, for example, at, at Boyden or at, at the Cape Observatory, who has retired, that individual is um, a microcosm of wisdom about the history of that establishment. Mm-hmm. And they will have a lived experience of what it was like to be an astronomer in Cape Town in 1978. So one of the other projects is to record or is to collect oral histories. That's interesting to me, actually, because kind of what I want to do is have conversations like this with professional astronomers, amongst other people, from various observatories and institutes and departments around the country. That sounds like something that would be useful to you. Absolutely. Obviously, edits it down. But so, yeah, so again, so, so some of our projects are listed on our website. So we are the Center for Astronomical Heritage at cfih.org.za. Mm-hmm. And um, anybody who wants to volunteer time, and of course, if they want to volunteer millions and millions of dollars, they're welcome to. But at this moment, the citizen science thing, it's a really interesting, engaging thing to do. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Alan. Yeah. That was the second episode of the Urban Astronomer podcast. Next week, I'll be playing you a recording of a talk that I gave to the Pretoria branch of Mensa, the International High IQ Society, on astrophotography. They invited me to speak in my capacity as the director of the astrophotography section of the Astronomical Society of South Africa, not realizing that it's more of an administrative role that I'm not actually such a great photographer. I think the talk went fairly well. Uh, They gave me a copy of the recording and they said I could use it for the podcast. So I look forward to that next week. You can follow me on Twitter at UAstronomer or you can go to Facebook and search for The Urban Astronomer. Uh, Facebook page uh, where you can find links to the podcast episodes or you can just go to the Urban Astronomer website at www.urban-astronomer.com If you enjoy the show please don't forget to share uh, the links on your on your social media or tell a friend about us I uh, really appreciate it, it's great to know that as many people are hearing me as possible Thank you so much, we'll listen to you next week <laughs>